I remember sitting with Mong and Tong and talking about starting a Burmese congregation. And the first couple of weeks, there weren't that many people in the whole congregation. And now the choir is that big. A couple of weeks ago, 240 people worshiped in our Burmese uh, service on a Sunday afternoon. So we thank God for this congregation. We thank God for what God has done. And you, you know, you know, it's a God thing when you can't explain it in human terms and nobody can take credit for it, but God. And so we give God glory for that. Would you pray with me? Father, we stand amazed at your goodness and your grace. You're the God who saves. You're the God who reveals truth to us by your Holy Spirit. And you're the God who has called us to be your disciples and to join together to make relationships so we can make disciples, so we can make an impact on the world. And Lord, we thank you for what you've started here because when we see what you've started, we remember that you're the God who finishes everything you start and you've begun a good work in this church. And we pray, Lord, you will bring it to completion, to fruition, and that every good thing you want to do in us corporately and each of us individually, Lord, our answer to you is yes, we want what you want. And we pray, God, you would do something so great and so amazing that we would simply have to say only God could do that. Lord, do something greater than we can ask or imagine according to your great power, which is at work in your church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what if Jesus lived in your neighborhood? What would he do if he worked where you work? If he went to school where you go to school, what would Jesus do? I ask that question because we've been talking about being disciples in this apprentices series. We said that a disciple is an apprentice of Jesus who follows him, who learns from him. That was last week who lives like him, that's today, and who leads others to do the same. That's next week. And that's our definition of a disciple. And today I want to think with you about living like Jesus. And I wonder, what is it that makes it difficult for us to live like Jesus? I think about that mom who was making pancakes for her kids. She has a five-year-old son named Kevin, three-year-old son named Ryan. And while she's making the pancakes, they're fighting. And they're fighting over who's going to get the first pancake. And she stops in this teachable moment and says, you know what? If Jesus were here, this is what he would say. I want my brother to have the first pancake. And so I surrender my right to the first pancake because I want you to have it. And the boys were quiet for a moment. And then Kevin, the older one, looked at Ryan and said, okay, Ryan, you be Jesus. <laughs> you, you be the one who lets me have the first pancake. And one of our struggles with being disciples is that we're all ready for somebody else to be Jesus. And we like the fact that Jesus was Jesus because we admire Jesus. But when it comes to following Jesus, the challenge for us is this act of transformation that God is trying to work in our lives. And truthfully, sometimes, I'll just speak for myself, it's hard to believe that somebody like me could actually become like Jesus Christ. I mean, I know the Bible says that, but when I see it worked out in my life and one of my good friends was talking to me after the service and he said, Dwayne, I've been at this so long. Why am I still struggling with these things? It's hard to believe that God is making me like Jesus. But I want you to hear what Paul says about that in Romans chapter eight. He says it's inevitable 
For those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God is making you and me more and more like Jesus Christ. And even if you and I have a hard time believing that, it may help us to realize that Jesus believed it could happen and it would happen. Can I show you that in John chapter 13? I'm going to read verses 1 to 5, verses 12 to 17, verses 34 and 35. And uh, you're still with me, aren't you? We're in John 13, then John 15, 12 and 13. And then I'm going to read to you just a few verses in Ephesians. And if you can stay in John 13, Ephesians 4, 5, that little intersection of 4 and 5 there, you'll be right with me this morning. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. I'm intentionally reading uh, from the ESV because my NIV is on the counter in my kitchen right now, just to put everything on the table. So it's on that table. And so in John chapter 13, so it may read a little differently than yours, but that's okay because you're going to follow along in the NIV. You're going to get the double blessing of NIV ESV as we read together this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, Peter tried to argue with him about it because Peter always wanted to argue with somebody about something. But in verse 12, after Jesus um, explains to Peter what he's doing, then when he had finished and washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and assumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Then in verses 34 and 35, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then in chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, this is my commandment that you love one another as, big word there, as I have loved you, greater love has no one than this, that he, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then in Ephesians chapter four, Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved, dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Please be seated and hear God's word today. Jesus believed that his disciples could become like him. And I know that 
because on that last night after working with them for three years and walking with them and teaching them and doing miracles in front of them and feeding multitudes of people with just a few fish and loaves, he realizes on the last day that they still don't have it. The final exam is about to take place and they haven't gotten ready for the test. And so they don't know what it is. And he knows that because they're still arguing with each other over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And as long as they're arguing over that, he knows they're never going to understand that the way for the world to know that they are his disciples is if they will love each other and they can't stand each other at this moment. And so he knows that they don't know how to love each other. And so instead of just saying something, he shows them the full extent of his love. Jesus does this, it says, because he's always loved them and he's loving them all the way through the finish line and he gets up and he takes the posture and the attire of a servant and he washes their feet, the most ignoble, ignominious task of a servant to wash the dirty feet of his disciples. And then he says, do you know what I've done for you? And the legalistic, uh, simple, uh, literal answer would have been, yeah, you washed our feet. Thank you. Now we have clean feet. But Jesus says, I did this not just so you would have clean feet, but so that you would follow my example because I believe you can do what I have done. Later that night, he says, I want you to love the same way I have loved you. And later that night, he says, and the way I'm going to love you is by laying down my life for you. Jesus believed that his disciples could become like him and exactly what was Jesus like? I read a book this week um, by um, Ed Dobson. It's called The Year of Living Like Jesus. And for one year of his life, after he retired as a pastor because he had Lou Gehrig's disease, um, he decided that for one year he would try to live like Jesus lived. So he found a Jesus cookbook so that he could eat the same kind of food that Jesus ate in the first century as best we understand it. He, he studied what people wore in that day so he could wear clothes like that. He, um, he did... Um, the things that he thought Jesus would do. But his disappointment was that at the start of the year, the very first day of that year, January 1st, he's on his way to the airport and he's honking at people because they're driving too slow and he's trying to make it to his flight. And he goes, that's not very much like Jesus. Then he reads the gospels through. He tries to do it every week, all four gospels. He gets it through 35 times in a year, which is a lot of times getting through the gospel. And he said, at the end of the year, I was so proud of myself for having read the gospels that many times. And he said, I, I knew then I still have a long way to go to be like Jesus. And it occurred to him that he had not fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He had not given up everything that he owned, much less even a, a week of his salary. He said he hadn't talked about that with his wife. He, he, um, he didn't call 12 disciples. He didn't live as a homeless person. Jesus said, I have no place to lay my head. He, he didn't do a lot of the things that Jesus did, but he did, however, go to bars because in his mind, as he read the New Testament, it occurred to him that Jesus would probably hang out in bars some. And I have a good friend who's a member of this congregation who meets at a pub uh, once a week with a group of people who aren't Christians at a bar. And he said to me, hey, would you come one night and just hang out with us at the bar? And I said, absolutely. I'll be glad to do that. And I went and just uh, stayed with him at the bar and met his friends. And it was a great opportunity just to love People. Now he got criticism for that. And at the end of the year, he said, you know, the problem with becoming like Jesus is it's really, really hard. Well, it is. I mean, we know enough to know that, that it's really hard. And years ago, G.K. Chesterton said, um, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult 
and left untried. But God's purpose in my life and your life is to conform us to the image of his son. As C.S. Lewis said, this is why Jesus came so that the church could draw people into Christ and turn them into little Christ. And I just want you to read sometime, if you read the New Testament this year with us, what you're gonna discover is it actually took place. So in Acts chapter four, uh, John and Peter heal the man in the temple and they're trying to figure out how these guys have this power to lift this lame guy all the way to his feet. And they're trying to figure it out. And finally, the religious leaders who crucified Jesus say, you know what? This guy is the way he is, this John and this Peter, because They've been with Jesus. They're unschooled and ignorant. They're not trained. They're not trained in any rabbinical school, but they actually have been with Jesus. In fact, the new Christians in Antioch were so much like Jesus that the locals started calling them um, little Christ Christians. This is the work that God wants to do in our lives. And I'll tell you about Jesus, just my understanding, and I have only a rudimentary understanding after all these years of studying. But here's what I know. Jesus lived a cruciform life. If I can coin an architectural term, Jesus lived a cruciform life. Our old worship center, this worship center, if you could see it from the sky, are shaped in the shape of a cross. This one, like a Greek cross, the uh, arms are the same length as the, uh, as the, the length. The other one, sort of the traditional cross, but in the form of a cross. And here's what I know about Jesus. Vertically, he lived with love. He loved God with all, heart, soul, mind, and strength, but don't miss the all. He loved God with all, vertical love, and he loved his neighbor as himself. And when they asked him, what are the great commandments? He said, that's it. You got to love God with all. You got to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the way Jesus lived. And that's the way he invites us to live, to love God with all and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And he says, the only way the world is going to know you're my disciples is if you love it's not something you can do for a year. And it's not about what you eat or what you wear so much as it's about who you are being transformed by God's love inside. We become loving people. And, and here's what I don't want you to hear today. And this is really, really important because sometimes I think we leave the impression if you ask the, the world outside the church, so what are the Christians like? I'm not sure. I could be wrong, but I'm not sure the first word that would come to their mind is love. I'm not sure. I could be wrong. But I think if, they, if you ask people outside the church, so what are those people are about? They might say, well, they're about rules more than they're about relationship. And if we misunderstand the gospel, here's the problem with the misunderstanding of Jesus' Messiahship. It will lead to a distorted discipleship. And Jesus didn't come so that we could be better rule keepers. Jesus came so that we could have relationship with him. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him, the world might be saved. And here's what we don't want to say to the world is, hey, if you will try to do a little better, God will love you more and it will go well with you. Because here's the deal about the gospel. God could not love us more than he already does. And he couldn't have shown it to us more plainly than he did on the cross. So since we know he loves us, now we want to be loving because we've been loved. And the gospel we love must become the gospel we live. And the gospel we love is that God has loved us. As someone has said, we're worse off than we thought and more loved than we had ever dreamed. So we are sinners and we hate our own sin and we hate sin, but we do not hate sinners because Jesus didn't hate sinners. 
And you just read the gospels and see who Jesus hung out with and the criticism he took for hanging out with the last and the lost and the least and the worst and understand that if we insulate ourselves from the world thinking that will make us more like Jesus, we are absolutely missing the point. You are the salt of the earth. Be salty. You are the light of the world. For heaven's sake, shine. Be a part of the world and live, he says, a life of love because you have been loved. And here's what I want you to hear. Every time as we're learning how Jesus lived, you can just summarize it in a word. He embodied love. He was love. He loved God. He loved people. And to the extent that we're loving, we're learning how Jesus lived this life of love. And what happens is when we understand that it gives us both the motive and the measure of our love. The motive, it it tells us why we love other people because we have actually been loved by God. I read this week about a guy who flies all the time and he was on one particular flight and he could just tell when he got on the flight, things were different. People treated him differently. There was something strange about this flight. The flight attendants were incredibly, and if you're a flight attendant, thank you for what you do. And I'm sorry for the rude people who are on the plane sometimes, but, but this particular day, these flight attendants were, they were just spot on. They were so kind and gracious to everybody and so patient with everybody. And finally, this guy calls the flight attendants over and says, hey, I, I get on flights all the time and I've never seen anybody as nice as you all are being. I just want to say, good job. That's great. And she said, yeah, you can thank the lady in seat 12B for that. He said, come again. Who's the lady in 12B? Yeah, she's the head of all the flight attendants for our airline, and she happens to be on our flight. It may help us this week with loving people to know Jesus is on our flight. The one who loved us best is on our flight. He's with us, not to make us feel bad, not to shame us into doing better, but to show us we are unconditionally loved. And that love becomes transforming and contagious. And we start loving people the way he loves. And that then it, the measure of our love is unlimited because his love is not only unconditional, but it's unlimited. He, he loved with a limitless love. And I heard the story of Chiyuni Shugihara this week, this Uh, ambassador from Japan to Lithuania in the late 1930s. His ambition in life was to be uh, Japan's ambassador to Russia. And he was well on his way being already in Lithuania in his early 30s. But there, there he was and he was serving in that capacity. And one morning he wakes up and outside the embassy, there is this throng of people And they are Jews from Poland who have been displaced from their country and they are literally running for their lives and they are beating on the embassy door and gate saying, please give us visas so we can get out of this country. You will save our lives. And he sends a message. Chiyuni sends a message to Tokyo and they say, no, you can't do that. He sends another message. No, you can't do that. Third time. No, you can't do that. Finally, he says, you know what? I'm going to do it. So he starts writing visas as fast as he can type for 28 days. They keep saying to him, you need to come home. You need to check in back in Tokyo. He keeps writing. Finally, as he's getting on the train to go back, he's handing out visas through the windows to people that he's writing with his own hand. Finally, he just starts throwing stationery from the embassy at them so they can fill in the blanks because he wants to save their lives. And it is estimated he saved 6,000 people. He saved the lives of 6,000 people. Their descendants today estimated in Israel at 40,000 people who are very grateful to him. Now, why did Chiyuni Shugihara do that? Because he was a follower of Jesus Christ. 
He didn't become the ambassador of Japan to Russia. He spent part of the rest of his life selling light bulbs door to door because he had disobeyed the authorities above him. And when his story came out and they dedicated a park in his name that you can see if you ever go to Israel. And when they did that, somebody asked his son, so why did your son, why did your dad do this? And he said, my dad did this because God needed somebody to save those people's lives. And when he had the chance, he did it. And I'm pretty sure that's what Jesus was talking about when he said, greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And I wonder if you and I are willing to do that. And and here's the deal. We'll only do that if we really believe that God loves us. And until we believe that God loves us, we are not going to live lives of love. I said to our staff this past week, we had a staff retreat, which is more like a staff advance because we weren't backing up. We were going forward, but we were working on 2020 together. And I said to him, uh, let me read this from Trevor Hudson over you. And I want you to, you can Google it. You can read it. It's called the beloved chart. And I want you to read it every day this week, just for one week. I want to remind you that you are loved in Christ. And this is what Trevor Hudson wrote. You are my beloved child in whom I delight. This is God speaking to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. You are my friend. I formed your inward parts and knitted you together in your mother's womb. You were fearfully and wonderfully made, made a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor. You've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which I've already prepared to be your way of life. And when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned and the flame will not consume you. You are precious in my sight and honored and I love you and I know all your longings. And your sighing is not hidden from me. Nothing will ever be able to separate you from my love in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Abide, live in my love. And I wonder if we can really believe that God loves us like that. As a kid, I used to watch church on TV. I was an unusual kid, maybe, I don't know. But um, there was the Rex Humbard show. And I remember the Rex Humbard singers would always start and end the show with this song. I am loved. I am loved. I can risk loving you. Because the one who knows me best loves me most. That's what I'm trying to say this morning is because we're loved, we can risk loving other people. But if we don't understand the gospel as a gospel of love and not of of rules, then we're forever going to be saying to people, why can't you be better instead of realizing that God loves us and his love empowers us to do what we could never do on our own. It's what Paul was talking about when he said to them in Ephesians chapter four, verses 20 and 21, you didn't learn Christ that way because they were continuing to live lives of disobedience to God. And he said, you didn't learn Christ that way. When you heard about him, you were taught in, in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. That's not the way that you lived, he says. And that's not the way that God wants you to live. You were created, verse 24, in the likeness of God. And in chapter five, verse one, he says, be imitators of God. Can I just tell you what that looks like? He gives specific examples. He says, I know you used to lie, Ephesians 4, 25, but now you're gonna tell the truth in love. I know you used to steal, he says, but now you're going to work so that you can give with your hands. This is transformation. He says, I know that you used to be angry and I know Christians and you do too that just come across to the world as very, very angry, just militant. You people are terrible and why are you doing this to our country and why are you doing this to our world? And here's, I'll tell you what God's doing in my heart. I'll just give you a testimony that the more I'm working on memorizing scripture this year and, and focusing on discipleship, the more I find that when I see people who I know are living outside God's will, instead of anger at them, 
I'm feeling this amazing love for them. Like, wow, God loves, God loves us. He, he, he could forgive me. He can forgive anybody. And he's transforming us into people who love the way that he loved, who wash feet the way that he washed feet, who forgive the way that he forgave. And that takes God's transforming power, but God's power is enough to do that. I love, I love the story of the guy named Joe who became a Christian at the Bowery Mission in Manhattan. It's been there since the 1800s and they help people with addictions to alcohol and drugs. And a guy named Joe goes there and he is a wino and he is struggling. His life is a mess and he goes there and he becomes a follower of Jesus and he starts changing. In fact, he starts serving the other people who are staying there at the mission. If they get sick, he's the one who cleans it up. When they can't take care of themselves, he helps them get into bed. He feeds them if they can't, if they can't eat. He's w- working to help them. And everybody starts noticing that Joe has changed. And one night, one of the other guys during the worship service starts walking down toward the pastor and he's just praying. And he says, oh God, make me like Joe. God, please make me like Joe. God, make me like Joe. And the pastor catches him at the front and says, I think you're praying the wrong prayer. You should be saying, oh God, make me like Jesus. Please make me like Jesus. And the guy looks at him sincerely and says, is he like Joe? Is Jesus like Joe? Because I want to be like Joe. And I know God wants to make us like Jesus, but for that to take place in our lives, there has to be a transformation. I just want to leave you with this promise from verse 17. He says, you are blessed if you do this. If you put into practice Jesus' love, there's a blessing that he offers. And it's a blessing that we can only receive if you and I actually take God at his word and begin to be transformed by his grace to become like him. So what if Jesus lived in your neighborhood? What if Jesus worked where you work? What if Jesus went to your school? What if he does in you? Let's pray. God, thank you for your amazing grace and love. We stand in awe of all that you have done in our lives. And we are so grateful for your love, Lord. And we pray that your love would continue to change us until we become loving toward people the way that Jesus was. When a woman was caught in adultery, um, when people were struggling with sin, when Peter denied him, knowing Judas was going to betray him, he washed his feet. Lord, we want to love like that. Because we know if we love with that kind of compelling love, the world is going to wonder why we are who we are. And we'll always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us because we've been transformed by your grace. God, make this a place of grace. Make us a people who love like you love so the world will know that you are working in us and you are changing us. And we're not who we ought to be, but thank God we're not who we used to be. God, change me. And change us and conform us to the perfect image of your son. And when we learn how you live and help us to love the way you love and let the gospel we love, the gospel that saved us, become the gospel we live as your apprentices in this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.